we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Didn't get to do a podcast yesterday. We did have a spectacular rally in the Dow yesterday. I think we were up better than 1,600 points on Monday. Again, one of the biggest uh, up moves ever. I think like 7% uh, for the Dow. And this morning, uh, Reversal Tuesday got off to another big start. I think we were up almost a thousand points and we closed right on the lows. I think the Dow was down a little bit. I mean, it wasn't a big down day, but we were down nearly a thousand points from the intraday highs. All the, I think the, the indexes, I think were negative. Uh, maybe the NASDAQ might have, well, no, I think NASDAQ was down as well, but not much, but obviously way off of session highs. I think a lot of the optimism over the last couple of days was sparked by the idea or the thought that maybe the worst is behind us when it comes to the coronavirus. If you look at some of the countries, they're reporting that the the new infections and the, the number of new infections is slowing down a bit. And I think that created uh, some optimism, maybe some short covering in the market, some people who might have gotten short recently covering on on that news now now first of all I, I think it is you know overly optimistic to just assume that the worst is behind us certainly when it comes to the way the governments are responding uh, to the virus but also for the virus itself I mean we don't know uh, that uh, we're not going to see another uptick in the infection rates and also we don't know even if uh, we we get past this, and in a month or, or two, or I don't know, whatever that is, uh, we get the all clear to come out of hiding and we can, you know, leave our homes and go back to work. Those of us that still have jobs to go back to. But we have no idea whether or not there's another wave, a second wave of infections that's going to come back. All of a sudden, people start getting the virus again and we're ordered uh, back into hiding. Right. I mean, that could happen at any point. So the idea that it's all gone, I think, is premature. But even if you assume that that is the case, right? even if you assume the most optimistic scenario with respect to some type of return to normalcy when it comes to our social behavior, right? whether or not we have to distance ourselves from one another or whether or not we can venture back into the world, just assuming the most optimistic scenario there, it doesn't change the fact 
that at least from the United States perspective, and it's probably true in a lot of other countries, but I want to be particularly focused on the United States, that we are still going to be in recession and that the stock market is still in a bear market because everybody is still focusing blindly on the pin, right? And they are missing the bubble. The bubble is what is more important than the pin, at least if you're trying to make an assessment on what's going to happen with the economy and what's going to happen with the stock market. Because as I've been saying, before anyone ever heard of coronavirus or COVID-19, right, the U.S. economy was overdue for a recession. We had the longest expansion ever uh, in the post-World War II era. And so we were bound to have a recession sooner rather than later. And we, we have one. We also had the longest bull market that we've ever had. It was bound to end. And it finally did. Now, that doesn't mean that the bear market's over and the recession is over. Far from it. I think it's just getting started. I mean, it got started with a bang, that's for sure. Uh, but we're nowhere near the end of this process. This is just uh, the, the beginning of it. And so people are, are missing this, right? They have, they have no clue uh, where we were as an economy. So they have no idea where we're headed. Because if anybody who thinks that everything was great before the crisis doesn't understand anything, right? And so if they didn't understand the precarious nature of the economy prior to COVID-19, then how are they going to understand the economy subsequent to COVID-19? They're not. So all this is a bunch of noise. Uh, and if anything, it's an opportunity for people to get out of U.S. stocks into a rally but not to be in cash. As I said, cash is going to be trash. Cash is going to be destroyed by the Federal Reserve. So you don't want to go to cash. You want to go to assets that will weather an inflationary storm better than U.S. stocks and bonds, which means you want to go to international stocks. You want to go to gold. You know, by the way, yesterday, gold futures made a new high. It's a new seven or eight year high. I think they got up above 1740 intraday. We pulled back. The spot market never quite got that high. We're still around 1650, I think, in the, the spot market. But gold has been very strong. I mean, it's still up about 10% so far this year. And despite that, gold stocks are down. I mean, in many cases, gold stocks, particularly the junior mining stocks, are down more than the broader market. In fact, if you look at where the U.S. stock market is trading now. Just look at the S&P. I mean, we're about where we were at the very end of 2017, the beginning of 2018. Why should the U.S. stock market be trading at the same level as it was back then? I mean, because the situation is completely different, at least even the way the mainstream analysts would view it. Because in the beginning of 2008 and of 2007, Everybody was optimistic on the economy, on the stock market. You know, unemployment was record lows and going lower. Corporations were buying back stock like crazy. We just had tax cuts. We were looking forward to a great uh, trade deal, right? Everybody thought Trump was a shoe in to get reelected because we had a booming economy, the likes of which the world had never seen. So with all that optimism, consumer optimism, investor optimism, political optimism, right? All the buybacks flowing, right? The stock market was at the same level it's at now. Yet now we're not only in recession, but potentially a worse recession than 08. I mean, even that is the consensus of opinion. Unemployment has just skyrocketed to levels worse than the Great Recession, right? President Trump's political future is now in jeopardy. At best, it's a toss-up whether or not he gets reelected. The Fed is back at zero, where QE4 is already bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined. All this stuff has happened. And of course, corporate earnings are about to go off the edge of a cliff, right? So all this bad stuff is known, right? And now it's actually worse. The stuff that's going to happen is much worse than what most people think. But even if you accept the bad stuff that is the conventional wisdom, right? So all this bad stuff that people now think is going to happen 
Yet the stock market, for some reason, is at the same valuation as it was a couple years ago when it was still way overvalued, when even back then it was almost the longest bull market in history. Not quite because it took a while that we, to break the record. Maybe it was the second oldest bull market in, in U.S. history, the second longest expansion. Why should the stock market today have the same price? And it's actually a higher valuation. If you discounted today's price by the now expectation for earnings, I'm sure that based on forward earnings estimates, to the extent that anybody can even estimate forward earnings right now, because so many companies you know, have withdrawn their guidance, nobody has any idea. I mean, I don't know if you can count the bailout money as earnings, because A, I mean, it's not recurring. At least I hope it's not recurring. It's just kind of a one-off extraneous event. But, you know, you back out whatever bailouts anybody is expecting to have and you look at earnings. I mean, who knows where they are? So based on that, the stock market is probably even more expensive, right, a valuation level than it was, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. So it makes no sense that the market is trading where it is. So it should be lower. And the economy, you know, this recession is is just getting started. You know, I was listening to. Donald Trump, you know, he has these conferences now every day and he was bragging. He said it was like really good, right? It was a good thing that they have already blown through the entire $350 billion that was allocated for the, you know, protection of the paycheck protection plan, the, the small business bailouts that they had $350 billion set aside. And they've already got so many applications that they're out of money. And now the Fed, Fed has to print up a new batch. And so apparently they're rushing down and they're fast tracking another $250 billion to be printed up so that they can give out more loans, you know, as if these loans are actually going to, to help. They're not. I mean, all of these loans are counterproductive, apart from the fact that they're just created through inflation, right? Just We're just printing money which is not adding value to the economy. It's actually going to be subtracting uh, from the economy. But we are interfering in the recovery. You know, it's just amazing the complete lack of understanding of free market economics, you know, in government. You know, I mean, nobody, nobody in the White House or Congress or on television has the slightest idea how economies work. I mean, I mean, everybody would flunk a, a course in Econ 101, at least the course that I would give. I don't know what kind of crazy courses uh, the universities have these days. Uh, but, you know, one of the most important things to understand about economics is supply and demand and the importance of allowing supply and demand to work uh, and, uh, you know, the, the importance of allowing businesses to adjust to changes. I mean, what these bailouts are designed to do is to keep companies in business that otherwise would have failed, to keep people employed who otherwise would have lost their jobs. But businesses failing and people losing their jobs is an important part of capitalism. I mean, it may not be fun for the people who lose their jobs or for the businesses that fail, but it's a necessary part of capitalism. And if we don't allow that to happen, then we don't get the benefits of capitalism. Let me give everybody a basic illustration here. And let's just talk about one category of companies, which would be restaurants, right? Now, obviously, there's a lot of restaurants that are going to go out of business because their owners don't have enough cash to make it through, you know, a month of uh, no customers or two months. They can't pay their rent, right? And just, you know, just take a vacation for a couple of months because they're, they're just living on the edge, right? They're, they're, their restaurants are very marginal. They don't have any savings. They have a lot of debt. And, and, and this is enough to, to cause them to go out of business. Look, the, re the reality is we have too many restaurants. That's, I mean, that's just the, the, the reality. And it's obvious that the demand for restaurants in the immediate future, whether it's three months, six months, a year, two years, whatever it is, 
is going to be down. People are not going to be eating out as often, either because they have lost their job and they can't afford to eat out or just because they don't want to, right? They want to minimize their uh, contact, right? Because they're still worried about getting the coronavirus. And so they want to mitigate the risk of of contracting it by not being in social situations, not being confined in a small room with a lot of other strangers. And that pretty much, you know, defines restaurants. So let's say because of changes in near-term behavior and because of a, a weaker economy, people are just not going to be eating in as many restaurants. So what is the appropriate market response for a reduction in demand for restaurants? Well, the response is that the supply of restaurants needs to go down. And how do you reduce the supply of restaurants? Well, restaurants close. Restaurants go bankrupt. Which ones go bankrupt? Well, obviously, the ones that were barely making it before, the ones that are marginal, right, that really weren't making much of a profit, where the owners were just kind of on a shoestring and and barely making it. And, of course, a lot of these businesses were pushed over the edge by, you know, successive rounds of minimum wage hikes that they could barely afford. So we need to allow these restaurants to go out of business because that way the stronger restaurants that have, you know, better uh, balance sheets that have, you know, been run more efficiently, that way these restaurants can survive because now all the restaurants will be competing with one another for a smaller pool of potential customers. And so if you have fewer people eating out, you need fewer restaurants. Therefore, each restaurant that's in business can have more people sitting at their tables, right? Because I'm not sure where the break-even is for each, each individual restaurant. But if we have the government step in to prevent a lot of restaurants from going out of business, right? Keeping restaurants in business, then the supply of restaurants never goes down. But the supply of customers has gone way down. So now each restaurant has fewer people because we're, we're splitting up all the people, right? Instead of there being, let's say, two restaurants on a street, or instead of there being one restaurant on a street, there's now two. So all the people that are eating on that street are now splitting uh, between the two restaurants instead of all going to one. If they had all gone to one, maybe that one would have made a profit. But because they're splitting and they're going to two, neither business can make a profit because neither of them has the economies of scale to generate a profit. Had the government allowed the more marginal restaurant to shut down, then the stronger restaurant could have survived on its own. But by propping up the inefficient competitor, what happens is you punish the the efficient business because you're taking away customers that he otherwise would have been able to have and generate a profit. So this is what's going on. Now, I, I, I posted that thought on Twitter and somebody responded to me, that, well, Peter, don't you believe in competition? Well, you're anti-competition. I do believe in competition. But what I don't believe is the government subsidizing the competitors because we don't want people who are operating at a loss kept in business by government subsidies. That's not fair competition. That's not real competition. That actually destroys healthy competition because we don't want to just have competition because we want to have the maximum number of restaurants. We want an efficient market. We want the supply and demand for restaurants to intersect, right? At a point where the customers have enough choices in the market of where they want to eat, but that the restaurants that are satisfying that demand can generate enough profit to stay in business. And if there's not enough demand, given the supply of restaurants, then the supply of restaurants has to come down because the free market is allocating resources. And if a lot of people don't want to eat at restaurants, the market is saying, hey, we need fewer restaurants. We need to free up those resources. We need to free up those workers to do other things. We don't need them waiting tables. We don't need them tending bar because there's not enough demand. They need to figure out what they should do. Because if people aren't going out to restaurants, what are they doing with their time and where their money is, right? And that's where the resources need to be reallocated. But when the government tries to entrench businesses and employees where they are, 
Because when it comes to government, and this is, you know, I didn't make this up. I think this goes back to Henry Hazlitt or probably before him. But you've always got the seen and the unseen, right? Everybody in politics is focused on what you see. They don't care about what you don't see because voters don't vote based on what they don't see. They vote based on what they see. And so when a politician uses government money or Fed print printed money to prop up a restaurant that would have gone out of business, right? The voters can see that. The people who didn't lose their jobs can see, oh, I still have my job thanks to the government, right? So you see that. You see the benefits of the government spending money. What you don't see is what would have happened had the government not do that, done that. You don't see the stronger economy that would have existed had the government got out of the way and allowed the free market to function. So you can never come back. I mean, I, you can't go back and say, hey, what if we didn't bail anybody out after 2008? What if we didn't have the stimulus, right? Because everybody thinks that because we did the stimulus, we're better off. But how do you know that? How do you know that had we not done any of the stimulus, not done any of the bailouts, that we would actually have been better off? Yes, I believe that in the very short run, it would have felt worse, right? Just like, you know, ripping a Band-Aid off, right? Yeah, it feels worse for a second when you're ripping it off. But then once it's off, it's a lot better than slowly peeling it off, right? But you don't know that. If you slowly peel it off, you can think, well, I'm glad I didn't rip it off really fast. Well, you didn't do it. How do you know what it would have been like if you, you, you didn't actually do it? It's the counterfactual. And it's the, the problem because the politicians are trying to win votes. They're not trying to win an economics debate, and they're not trying to do what's right for the country. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. An interview that I saw that kind of follows in with this topic about economic understanding uh, with Larry Kudlow. 
And, you know, Larry Cullo and I, as you know, we go back. I mean, I used to be a guest on his show and I've had many conversations with him uh, privately over the years. And I kind of, you know, know where his heart was or where I think his heart still is in his mind, more important than his heart. But, you know, I was watching an interview on CNBC, which was his old stomping ground. And he was talking with his old uh, buddies, uh, Jim Cramer, who was his partner on Cudlow and Cramer, talking to David Faber from Squawk on the Street, uh, some of the other usual suspects. And basically, if you listen to what he was saying, right, Cudlow has basically repudiated publicly everything he spent his entire career advocating, right? I mean, his motto on his show used to be that free market capitalism is the best path to prosperity. That's how we began or ended every single show. Free market capitalism is the best path to prosperity. Well, he no longer believes that. He now believes that socialism is the best path to prosperity. He believes that the path to prosperity lies with government spending. The more government spends, the better. And he doesn't even care how they get the money. He is perfectly fine with massive deficits, and he's perfectly fine with the Fed printing all the money to monetize it. He no longer cares about king dollar. He doesn't care about sound money anymore. He is a full believer in modern monetary theory. He is a dyed-in-the-wool Keynesian, right? I mean, it only took him two years. This is what happens. The guy has been in Washington for two years. That's it. And a lifetime of beliefs are out the window now that he's working for government. And you remember when Donald Trump first hired Kudlow, there was some hope, right, in, in the free market community that Larry Kudlow was going to help the president, you know, see the light. Like, oh, you know, because he's going to talk him out of all this protectionist nonsense. And, you know, and I remember saying, no, no, no. I said, what Trump is doing is it's a political move. You know, he's keeping his friends close and his enemies closer because he knew that Kudlow was critical of him. And so he wanted to bring him into his tent so he would no longer criticize him. Plus, he knew that Larry Kudlow had the ear of a lot of free market guys. And so he was going to need Kudlow to help convince those guys to abandon capitalism, right? That they should get on board with big government, with bigger deficits, with more spending. And that's exactly what's happened. I said from the beginning that it wouldn't be Kudlow that would change Trump, but it would be Trump that would change Kudlow. And that is exactly what has happened. In fact, when uh, his former partner, uh, a Kramer, came out with this crazy idea. He said, we should have the equivalent of a war bond, right? Like World War II, the government needs to sell a trillion dollar war bond, right? At one and a half percent, if they think they can get that lower rate, right? To fund infrastructure, right? A war bond, a Corona war bond. And Cudlow said, yeah, that's a great idea, Jimmy. Let me run it by the boss. You know, he really likes your ideas. And so, yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you that we should be doing that, right? A war bond. I mean, first of all, when we did the war bonds in World War II, we sold the bonds to the public. The public aren't going to buy these bonds. Cudlow knows the only one dumb enough or to buy a 30-year bond at 1.5% is the Federal Reserve. So if the Federal Reserve prints up all the money, it's not the same thing. Now, you know, somebody pointed out, and this is true, and I don't mean to create the false impression that the Fed didn't print any money during World War II. Of course it did. I mean, whenever there's a war, the Fed prints money. I mean, that started with World War I, and they did it again in World War II. It's just that the vast majority of the money the government borrowed to fund World War II, it borrowed legitimately uh, from the public. It was only a small portion of it. I don't remember, 20% or something like that. That was monetized by the Federal Reserve. So yeah, the Federal Reserve bought some and expanded its balance sheet. That happened. Yeah, there was inflation during the Second War, Second World War. But most of the debt was borrowed legitimately by the government and repaid, right? The, you know, people got paid back. And, you know, yes, the national debt continued to grow, but 
the economy grew much, much faster. And so the debt to GDP collapsed over the years after the war was over and the government was no longer funding you know, those military operations. But what Kudlow is now agreeing to do under these circumstances to sell the bonds directly to a Fed that's going to monetize the whole thing. There is no way that two years ago, Larry Kudlow would have endorsed such an asinine idea. But now all of a sudden, he's working for Trump. Oh, it's a great idea. Let me tell Let me tell uh, Trump about it. And then another thing, too, when he was talking with, with David Faber, they started to talk. And David was like, you know, Larry, back in the day, you know, like when you worked at CNBC, we were always worried about spending money and borrowing money and we couldn't afford stuff. And, you know, why didn't we just do it? I mean, why didn't we just spend all the money in the past? Why didn't we just buy all the infrastructure, right? Why are we waiting for a crisis? Why didn't we just do it, right? And and Cudlow can't even answer. And he just says, well, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, we learned a few things and I've come to Washington. And so now I know better. And yeah, I was a fool. Back when I was in the private sector, I actually thought that there was no such thing as a free lunch. But now I've come to Washington and I've discovered that it is free. All my life, I thought you couldn't have something for nothing. And I learned that all my life I was wrong, that the free market doesn't work, that capitalism doesn't work, that what we need is central government planning, that the way to grow an economy is to have smart people in Washington micromanage it, right? And that we just print a bunch of money and we don't have to worry about the deficits. It doesn't matter how big they are because we could just print whatever money we need and it's not going to have an effect. This is Cudlow. This is what this guy now believes, right? Look at Larry Kudlow from the video I put up on currency wars, right? Uh, the, 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 uh, of, of me from 2008 with Kudlow. Compare that Larry Kudlow, who was worried about QE, who was worried about 0% interest rates, who was worried about America becoming the next Argentina, and compare him to the Larry Kudlow that you're hearing today. But, you know, it's not just Kudlow that uh, the media is, is, is dragging out. It's all the former Fed chairs. Uh, first, first, Janet Yellen, right? Janet Yellen, I saw an interview with Janet Yellen on CNBC. And, you know, so one of the things Janet Yellen said, and I remember when she said it, because I immediately, you know, you know, criticized it on my podcast, probably on Twitter too. But Janet Yellen in a speech, and this is just a few years back. I don't sure, not sure exactly when. But she said that, she didn't think that we would see another financial crisis in her lifetime, right? That the U.S. was in such good shape, that the banking system was in such good shape, that if we ever had another financial crisis, it would be so far into the future that she would already be dead. Yet here it is just a few years later, and we already have another financial crisis, right? So that's number one. But number two, now the very Fed chair that said we'd never have another uh, financial crisis. And of course, she didn't even see the first one coming either. And, you know, I did a good job on YouTube of exposing that myth. Because if you recall, when Barack Obama first nominated Janet Yellen uh, to replace uh, Bernanke, right? When she did that, right? Or when he did that, she was touted and everybody in the media agreed that Janet Yellen predicted the 2008 financial crisis, that she was warning about it, and that everybody else, you know, uh, you know, just didn't listen to her, right? Despite the fact that she admitted publicly that she was surprised by the crisis, you know, she still accepted credit for having warned about it. Now, I remembered that there's no way, because I remember actually warning about it and knowing that nobody else at the Fed was warning about it. So I went back and I actually found the very speeches where she supposedly warned about the crisis in 2005 and 2006. So I read through those speeches and not only did she not warn about the crisis, she said that anybody who thought a crisis was coming was wrong. She said the housing market was in great shape. There was nothing to worry about. You know, we weren't going to have a recession. I mean, nobody was more clueless than Janet Yellen was. Yet somehow everybody decided to give her credit for having predicted and warned about the financial crisis. And then I made two YouTube videos about it. And maybe I'll put a link to them on this. Uh, you got to watch them. I mean, you got to watch the first one and the second one. There's part one. And then I came back and I did a part two. But I completely expose 
explode. And I blow out of the water because I have all the charts. I mean, I have all the quotes. I have everything from her speeches. And I totally show that she was completely blindsided by the financial crisis, had absolutely no idea that it was coming, and that all of the credit that she has been given by the media and by Obama was completely wrong. All right. So that's number one. She didn't see that crisis coming. And she said that we would never have another one. Well, now we have another one. And she's got the nerve <laughs> to say that the reason, the reason we're having another financial crisis is because corporations took on too much debt and they bought back too much stock. Now, ain't that rich? So she's blaming the crisis on the fact that corporations took on too much debt and they bought back their stock. Well, why did that happen? Who enabled corporations to get so levered up? It was the Fed. <laughs> Had the Federal Reserve not kept interest rates artificially low, it would have been too expensive for the corporations to borrow the money. And they couldn't have financed the share buybacks. The only reason corporations had so much debt was because the Fed kept interest rates so low, enabling the borrowing. And the only reason the corporations could finance all these share buybacks was because the cost of doing so was so low, thanks to the Fed. And of course, it's not like it was an accident. The Fed did this on purpose. It's not like the Fed didn't realize that corporations were loading up on debt because they made it so cheap. The corporations were doing exactly what the Fed wanted them to do. In fact, they said that up front. They were making money cheap because they wanted everybody to borrow it. In fact, they specifically said they wanted a stock market bubble. That was their solution. When one bubble pops, inflate another one. So now you get Janet Yellen saying, well, you know, the only reason we had a crisis is because these crazy corporations borrowed so much money. Of course, what else did she expect? That's exactly what she wanted to do. But then, of course, you have... Uh, some of the banks like Morgan Stanley, right? Morgan Stanley comes out and says, no, 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 no. It's the Fed's fault, right? And so, of course, I commented like, so you got the banks and the Fed arguing over who is at fault. That's like the bartender and the drunks arguing over who's to blame for the fact that the guy got drunk. Is it the person who made who kept drinking or the bartender who kept giving drinks to an obviously inebriated customer? I mean, clearly they're both at fault. But at some point, I guess the guy who's drinking is so drunk that the only one who's thinking rationally is the bartender. And I think that's what happened. I think early on, right, when the Fed liquored everybody up and Alan Greenspan was the initial bartender, right? But initially, right, people took the money and they were they were still a little sober. But once you have a few drinks, right, from, from the Fed's tap, and you're wasted. Well, then what do you expect? I mean, you're, you know, you're too drunk to know any better. Yet all these Fed bartenders kept on spiking the punch bowl, right? And now they want to claim, oh, it's not our fault. Right? You know, when I said this at the beginning, George Bush, this was one of his famous quotes from early in the financial crisis. George Bush said, Wall Street got drunk, right? That's what Bush said. Wall Street got drunk. And I agreed at the time. I said, yes, Wall Street was drunk. But why aren't you asking who the bartender was? Why are you not blaming the guy that served up all the alcohol, which was Alan Greenspan? But when Greenspan retired, they just got the relief bartender. Brand new, right? Ben Bernanke came in and took over the bar. And then Janet Yellen took over the bar. The only guy that belatedly tried to stop serving drinks was Powell. But at the first sign of trouble, right? Bar's wide open again. Drinks are on the house. That's where we are. But the whole thing is ridiculous that they're arguing over who's at fault. Clearly, they both bear some of the responsibility, but most of it has got to lie with the Fed, yet these guys claim none of it. But of course, that's going to bring me to the interview that I watched today. And I'm going to spend the rest of this podcast talking about that interview. Uh, and that was Ben Bernanke. And I saw this guy interviewed on YouTube, and I'm not even sure who interviewed him. I forget. I found out about it because I read about it on Zero Hedge. And I'm watching this interview with Ben Bernanke. I just finished watching it about an hour ago, right before I started this podcast. And as I was watching it, I had to keep pausing it because every time he said something crazy, I tweeted about it. And so you can look at my Twitter account and you can see all these tweets that, that, that I was composing as I was, uh, as I was watching it. 
And so I'm gonna I'm gonna go over them now. I'm actually gonna just go through my tweets because that will refresh my memory because he said so many stupid things. I don't wanna I don't wanna leave anything out. Okay, so first thing he said, he said that this recession that we have now, he said, is nothing like the Great Depression. And he 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 repeated that theme several times throughout this interview, right? It's it's nothing like the Great Depression. And he said that the reason why it's not like the Great Depression is because he said the Great Depression started because of a financial crisis and because of man-made policy errors. Okay, well, that's exactly what's happening now. We have a financial crisis. We have man-made policy errors. So in other words, it's exactly right, like the Great Depression. See, he thinks the problem is you know, like a natural disaster. So he's saying the problem is the virus. Uh-uh. The virus is a problem, but it's not the problem. Just like the stock market crashed in 2009. That was a problem. It wasn't the problem. It's not why we had the depression. We had the depression because of policy mistakes that the government made. That's what they're doing now. The problem is for all his studying of the depression, he still doesn't understand what those policy mistakes were because he made the same himself, right? So we are causing this depression because we are making policy mistakes in the aftermath of the coronavirus. And that's even assuming that our response to the coronavirus itself isn't a mistake, right? Even if you, let's assume that ordering all these businesses closed and forgetting about the constitutionality or legality of it, let's assume that this is the correct approach, right? Which I'm not even assuming because I still think that it's not the correct approach. I still think that we are blowing it out of proportion and, 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 and we are responding in a way that is not warranted. I think there is a, a more rational response to this virus than the one we have. But even if you give the government the benefit of the doubt that what they're doing is right as far as, okay, we all got to stay at home, social distancing, you know, nobody go to work, assuming all that's right. What the Fed is doing, what the government is doing, those are mistakes, right? If we've got to deal with a recession because of this virus, then we got to deal with it. But what the government is doing is going to make it worse. It's going to make it a depression. Because had we dealt with the stock market crash and what happened in 2009, the way we dealt with 2000, I mean, the way, I mean, what happened in 1929, had we dealt with the crash in 1929, the way we dealt with the crash in 1920, right, we wouldn't have had a Great Depression. The Depression was caused by Hoover and Roosevelt with their policy mistakes. And we're making even greater policy mistakes now. It's just that uh, ben Bernanke doesn't really understand the mistakes that were made in the 20s. He doesn't understand the mistakes that he made, both before and after the 08 crisis. And he doesn't understand the mistakes that are being made today. So the reality is what's happening right now is exactly like what happened in the Great Depression for the exact reasons that Ben Bernanke claims. Man-made policy mistakes, both monetary and fiscal policy mistakes, that are causing this depression, which is actually going to be worse than the one we had in, in the 1930s. Then the next thing he said about why this isn't like the Great Depression, he said, well, this isn't like the Great Depression because, you know, the Great Depression lasted for 12 years. Okay. I mean, so apparently this isn't a Great Depression because it just started. I mean, first of all, when the Great Depression started, nobody knew in the first month that what they were in was going to be the Great Depression. How did anybody know that one month in? You don't know. I mean, I don't know how many years into the Great Depression they start referring to it as the Great Depression, but it clearly wasn't in the first month. In fact, most people probably expected it to end quickly, especially when the government started interfering, living in the Great Depression. So here we are. This thing just started. How can Ben Bernanke claim it's not the Great Depression because it's only been a month? The Great Depression wasn't a depression in the first month, but it was the Great Depression. So it's too soon to claim that we're not in a depression based on the fact that it's only been a few weeks because it just started, right? So now I don't know how long is it going to take, months, years, before you can officially refer to it as a depression. Now, we don't call the Great Recession a depression, right? That didn't last long enough to have the moniker of depression. But it was long enough that we added great to recession. So we refer to it as the Great Recession. 
Uh, so I think this one will be the greater recession or you know, the, the, the Great Depression 2.0, or maybe we have to rename the Great Depression just the way they had to rename the war to end all war, wars, right? It wasn't World War I until we had World War II. Then they had to go back and rename it World War I. So maybe we'll call the Great Depression one and the Great Depression II or whatever. But it's clearly premature for Bernanke to claim this isn't a depression because it just got started. Then there was another question he was asked about inflation. Right? He was asked if he was worried about all this money right, that the Federal Reserve is creating, if all this money was going to create inflation. And of course, all this money is inflation. I mean, that's what inflation is. The Fed is inflating. So it's like asking a question, do you think inflation is going to cause inflation? Well, there's no point in asking the question because the question answers itself. It is inflation. But of course, you know, they like to talk about, well, inflation is prices. Prices going up, right? Not the result of inflation. Airfares. They said, look, you know, airfares are going down. Of course, airfares are going down because nobody wants to fly. That's why airfares are going down. That doesn't mean there's no inflation. And then he said, and, and people aren't eating in restaurants. Okay. So restaurants, they're still eating food. The price of food is going up. Maybe the price of eating in a restaurant isn't because people aren't eating in restaurants. But look, yes, if you want to buy an airline ticket, yes, that price has gone down. But that's one price. What about other prices? Yeah, sure, there's supply and demand. If nobody wants to fly, then ticket prices are going to come down until the airlines start going out of business, until the airlines start mothballing planes. I mean, you got these planes flying around charging $3 tickets. I mean, this is crazy. The government is subsidizing airlines to fly around planes with nobody on board. I mean, this wouldn't happen in a free market. Capacity needs to come down. These planes have to stop flying, you know, but, you know, the government's got them up in the air anyway. But for uh, 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 Bernanke to say there's no inflation because airline ticket prices have come down is complete nonsense. It, you know, it, there's going to be other prices that are going to go way up. But meanwhile, you know, it's all this money printing and he's not worried in the least. Right now, of course, when he did it before, when he did QE, right, all the inflation went into the financial market. So that didn't bother him. Right. Of course, now his pal Janet Yellen is saying, oh, I don't like all those share buybacks. That was inflation. Those share buybacks were created by Bernanke and Yellen providing the liquidity. The inflation manifested itself in higher stock prices because the money that the Fed was inflating was being used to buy up stocks. That's where it went. That's where the inflation was, hiding in plain sight. But nobody cared, right? Because everybody felt good because everybody got, you know, applause when the market went up. Oh, good job. Everything is great, right? But now when it blows up because it was a bubble, well, they're pointing fingers instead of accepting responsibility. Oh, here's another thing that he said, okay? So he was asked about the recovery from the 2008 financial crisis. And the guy interviewing him pointed out that it was a very weak recovery. It was a very slow recovery, right? And so according to Bernanke, the reason that the recovery wasn't more vibrant was because Republicans wouldn't allow Obama to do a bigger stimulus quicker, right? Because they didn't want deficits, right? So they, they prevented a bigger fiscal stimulus from happening quicker. And so therefore, we didn't have as good a recovery. We didn't have as strong a recovery because the government didn't print enough money or the government didn't borrow enough money. So the deficits weren't large enough under Obama, right? And now apparently that's all solved because now the Republicans are not leading in opposition. They're actually leading the charts, right? We are having bigger deficits now. In fact, the, the national debt, it's soon going to hit a $24 trillion. It's 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 twenty three point nine something trillion. In fact, I bet that by the time Trump finishes his first term, he will have added more to the debt in four years than Bush added in eight of his presidency. Now, I don't think he's going to get reelected, but if he does get reelected, he'll probably add more debt in eight years than uh, Obama and Bush did in 16 years combined, combined. You know, I mean, Trump campaigned on draining the swamp. Instead, he's draining the nation. That's what he's doing. But according to Ben Bernanke, this is all great news. 
Had we only done this, if those idiot Republicans had simply allowed bigger deficits when Obama was in charge, we would have had a much stronger recovery. And again, this is another example of the seen and the unseen. Because what Ben Bernanke doesn't understand is that stimulus, those bailouts that we got under Bush and Obama made the situation worse. We would have had a better recovery without them. But of course, that's the unseen, right? Ben Bernanke doesn't know about that. Look, I mean, look, the guy, he got a 1590 on his SATs. He went to Harvard undergrad. He's got a PhD from MIT. The guy's a very smart guy. He's real educated, yet he's completely clueless. My 17-year-old son, Spencer, knows more about economics than Ben Bernanke. You know, I was joking on Twitter that I, I came up with this theory uh, on education that the your, your economic understanding is inversely proportionate to the number of years you study economics at an American university. And the corollary to that rule is that the higher the ranking of that university, the less its graduates actually understand about economics. So this guy went to the top at MIT, so he's at the bottom when it comes to economic uh, understanding. But so he's now confident that because we have much bigger deficits this time, because the Fed is going to be printing a lot more money a lot quicker than it did when he was at the helm, that now it's going to be better. The reality is it's going to be worse because the smaller stimulus and bailouts of the 08, right, did damage since this time the government is doing even more, bigger deficits, bigger stimulus, bigger bailouts. It's going to be even more damage. So if you thought that recovery was weak, where do you get a load of this one? Because it's going to be much weaker because it isn't even going to happen. I mean, I don't even think we had a recovery from the last recession. It was a bubble masquerading as a recovery. I thought the economy was getting weaker the entire time that everybody thought it was recovering. That's why Trump got elected, because Trump told the truth in 2016 that there was no recovery, that it was a myth, that the economy was actually much weaker than what the statistics supposedly revealed or what Washington or Wall Street were saying. And the voters voted for Trump because they knew he was telling the truth because they lived in reality, not in this Federal Reserve fantasy. And so that was a phony recovery. Trump was right as a candidate. Well, the next recovery won't even be a phony recovery. It'll be so weak that it won't even be strong enough to be a phony recovery. Oh, and then I guess because of the Janet Yellen statement, right, where Janet Yellen talked about the fact that she was blaming this problem on excess corporate debt and buybacks, this guy actually asked Ben Bernanke the question. He said, do you believe that by keeping interest rates so low for some long that the Fed is responsible in a way for corporations having so much debt and for all the buybacks, which was a great question. In fact, it was the only good question that was asked. The problem is Bernanke didn't answer it. He just conveniently dodged it and changed the subject and answered a different part of the question that the guy shouldn't have, shouldn't have asked. And then unfortunately, after Obama, I mean, after uh, Bernanke avoided the question, the guy asking the questions just went on to another one. I mean, I really wanted him to come back and say, oh, excuse me, but can you answer the question I asked you? <laughs> because he obviously didn't want to answer it, or you know, maybe he doesn't know the answer, but he can't be that dumb. So instead of addressing the answer, he just completely ignored the question. Then probably one of the one of the best, uh, or probably I mean the worst, maybe uh, depending on your perspective, the guy interviewing him said, "Do you think it's appropriate monetary policy, right, for the Federal Reserve to just lend money to anybody?" Because he said, look, everybody is showing up now, corporations, municipalities. Do you think that's appropriate for like everybody to get a loan from the Fed and for the Fed to just pick and choose like who gets credit and who doesn't? And Ben Bernanke said, yeah, I think that's totally appropriate. That's what we should do. So he believes that the Federal Reserve should basically be centrally planning the economy, that instead of credit being allocated in a free market based on the interaction of, you know, uh, the savers and the borrowers, that decisions on loans should be derived at centrally by a planning authority at the Fed who is just going to conjure credit out of thin air and decide who gets it and who doesn't. 
this is what this guy actually believes. I mean, I said, you know, I don't know what uh, uh, MIT charged uh, uh, Bernanke for his PhD, but the guy's got to get his money back. I mean, how could you graduate? And you're basically a Marxist. You basically believe in central government planning. And the, the funniest thing, I probably fell out of my chair, is the reason that Ben Bernanke gave for allowing the Fed to be the mastermind of the economy and to be the deciding factor into which companies get credit and which don't was the Fed's good track record at making these objective analyses, which is, you know, what good track record? They got a lousy track record. Yet we're supposed to put these clowns in charge of the economy? Yeah, I mean, this is where we are. Yeah, then another thing that he said is he said, you know, a lot of people um, think that what's happening is like 2008, right? Because he says it feels like it's 2008, but it's nothing like 2008, right? According to Ben Bernanke, this is nothing like 2008, even though to some people it feels like it's 2008. And the reason that Ben Bernanke thinks this is nothing like 2008 is because he still doesn't understand what happened in 2008. Because if he did, he would know that it is everything like 2008 except worse. Because Ben Bernanke to this day, still does not understand the Fed's role in creating the financial crisis. He doesn't understand how the Fed's monetary policy before the crisis created the crisis. And he still doesn't understand how the Fed's uh, reaction, how its policies in the aftermath of that crisis inflated an even bigger bubble, which has now popped and is causing this crisis, which he still doesn't get. Everybody at the Fed is clueless including the people who are still there. And, you know, we are headed for economic disaster. And, you know, you have the Republicans, unfortunately, now leading the charge, right? That's one thing that Ben Bernanke got right. Back in 2009, there was some opposition to the stimulus. There was the Tea Party. That's what started the Tea Party, because Republicans were objecting to the deficit spending of Obama. I mean, they didn't object initially. At least some did. There were some Republicans that were against the TARP and things that, that that Bush did. And remember, Bush said we have to abandon capitalism to save it. And at the time, I said, the problem is we abandoned it too early. We needed to embrace it to save it. I said he was signing its you know death certificate, uh, what he did. And I was correct in my observations of what we were doing back in 2008. But a lot of Republicans made that deal with the devil. But they quickly got religion once Obama was in charge. And then the Tea Party came in in 2010. We got to put a stop to all this spending, right? Well, that's not going to happen now. The Republicans are leading the spending train. And they may not be leading for long because I think the next conductor is probably going to be Biden or, you know, I don't know if some other Democrat can, can, can take his place on the ticket. But nobody is going to be in opposition, no Republicans are going to be able to oppose any government spending under Democrats because they've already signed on. And in fact, if you've admitted, if you've agreed that all this spending is good for the economy in bad times, then it's got to be good in good times. And if money is no object, if we don't have to worry about the deficits, if we can have whatever it wants and all we have to print, then why can we deny all these other great things that the Democrats want to do? How can anybody deny them that? So the ability of any Republicans to be in opposition to any kind of in increase in government is gone. And, you know, this, you know, this coronavirus, I mean, you know, is probably a godsend for the politicians. I mean, it's perfect because now they can blame everything on it. I mean, we were going to have a recession anyway, and everybody forgets about that. Oh, yeah, we had a great economy, the greatest economy ever. Oh, and then we got COVID-19. And now, you know, you can't blame us. You can't blame the Fed. You can't blame Trump or Congress because we had to fight this uh, disease, right? So now everything is justified and no rights are, are, are too sacred now to be tossed out the window. The Constitution means nothing, right? Because, oh, we have to protect us from the coronavirus. And so it's, it enables the government to do all sorts of things that it never could have done. Now it's got a carte blanche to do whatever it wants. So they're going to ride this train, I think, as long as they can, because it's perfect uh, for what they want to do. It provides cover for all the stuff that they never could do but for this crisis. And, you know, if you listen to Donald Trump, I was joking again on, on Twitter 
Uh, we, we need to start referring to President Trump going forward. In fact, I'm going to refer to him this way just to make the point as uh, DJT, right? Donald James Trump. And the reason I want to call the president DJT is because this country has a long history of referring to very liberal presidents, presidents who really want to expand government, right? and make government bigger and embrace socialism and reject capitalism, right? We have a history of referring to those guys by their initials. The first one was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? So everybody started calling him FDR, right? And then we got John Kennedy. And Kennedy wasn't nearly as big a spender, but people, the Democrats liked Kennedy, just like they liked FDR. So they started calling John Kennedy JFK. Right, so we went from FDR to JFK, but when JFK was assassinated, we got Lyndon Baines Johnson, and he was a big, big government guy. He was the Great Society, War on Poverty, right? He really expanded the welfare state, and so everybody affectionately called him LBJ, right? So we had FDR, we had JFK, and we had LBJ. Well, we haven't had a president that we've just referred to as his initials ever since. And I think it's about time we bestowed that moniker on Donald Trump. So DJT, that's Donald Trump, you know, because this is the first time that the Republicans have been able to brand a big spending uh, president with the initials, right? So the Democrats have um, FDR and JFK, and LBJ, and now we have DJT.